I remember you oversold the food situation there and we got into trouble. (laughs) 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 That's what I remember. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Tropical MBA podcast. I've got the boss man here. Made some time in his busy schedule to drop by the pod. Ian, the last few weeks, we've been soliciting questions from the listeners. We got a bunch of them. We're going to walk through them one by one. First at the top, some news. No fewer than 150 spots have been reserved for this year's DCBKK. It's October 20th to the 23rd in Bangkok, in the kingdom of Thailand. This is an all-time record for our first week. What are your thoughts, reactions, feelings, and emotions? Everybody is uh, revenge traveling. (laughs) That's what I think. Everybody's like, get me out of here, man. Yeah, like just, we're doing it. What is it? We're doing it. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, I'm curious, like we're gonna have like a bunch of operational challenges to go through here. Are we gonna cap these tickets, Dan? Because we're like on our way to having our biggest event ever, which I'm very excited about. It's been over two years since we've done this event. Super excited about getting the band back together, getting to see old friends, meeting new friends. Very excited also to to go to Thailand. I haven't been to Thailand in two and a half years or whatever it is, three years yeah. now. It's going to be cool. And we have a lot of improvements coming up. The main reason I want to bring it up with the podcast is, you know, a lot of listeners, they're in a phase, we know this because you guys email us, that you're not going to come to this year's DCBKK, but you're thinking about it next year. You're hoping to in the future years. If you've got questions about how this event goes down, email us. We're going to be doing a full podcast about DCBKK. This is our 10th anniversary. It's kind of crazy to say that. And uh, yeah, we're going to put a ton of effort into this one, into making it our best event ever. In fact, right after this podcast recording, jumping on the DCBKK team call, we work on this event for six straight months. It's really exciting. It's kind of crazy through this pandemic and whatnot, you know, just supply chain issues have come up. I'm sure everyone has experienced this, like you can't get your favorite things. But I do think like now just less things are going to be available in the future. Like you can't always get whatever you want whenever you want it. So it might be the same with GCBKK. It's like you couldn't get it for a couple of years, which is kind of interesting. And like (laughs) now we're bringing it back. But what if you can't get it the year after? It's like none of these things are like uh, guaranteed anymore. Like our governments are shutting down borders. The idea that we might be going into a a bear market, a lot of people think that we're already in it. I was just thinking about like the demographic, all these kids, and I can say this because I'm not a kid anymore, I still act like it, but all these kids are like 25 (laughs) years old. Like they were literally in elementary school the last time a bear market happened. Like they have no idea what it's like to live through these types of... uh, Well, do tell us, Uncle Ian. What is it like? I mean, it's worth mentioning at the top, but we built our first business in this exact environment. And I remember it was a surreal situation being a bootstrapper, looking around at people who were really worried about getting upside down on their mortgages, people that were losing their jobs, and then, of course, stock markets and tech retraction and all this kind of stuff. And we were just sort of looking around in our little canoe like we're still floating. 
And so I do think um, bootstrappers are uniquely poised to weather these kinds of environments and take advantage of them. Yeah, for the generation that's about to have to probably go through this, good news for them is uh, memes are free. So they can just keep making those and... Uh, Shit posting will likely go on. The principles of this show are essentially anti-fragility. Keep your expenses low, protect your downside first and foremost, and expose yourself to asymmetric bets. That's essentially our brand of entrepreneurship. So that's more or less what will get you through the downturn. And then, you know, in terms of acquiring assets, it's an opportunity because at least what we've seen historically, you have people who are over levered or taking too many risks in situations like this. And it's an opportunity to press into assets that you might think are overpriced right now and to hold them through the next upturn. So I think that's an opportunity as well. It's also an opportunity for people that don't have a lot of wealth or a lot of assets to get into these assets. So I think if I'm in that demographic, that meme demographic, you know, 20 something years old, here's a chance to pick up some things that are probably gonna go back to the same level that they were at some point or even higher. So it's a good opportunity to get into things that maybe you couldn't afford before. Couple quick things on news items. Our remote recruiting service continues to plug along. We haven't updated our advertisement on the podcast that a lot of listeners have been telling us. So I'm working up some new copy, running the monster truck ad this week, boss man. But it's been cool to see the the growth of flat rate recruiting. I think people were really frustrated at going through the hiring process and not converting their candidates into full-time employees or you know, higher end recruiting firms charging 20% of first year salary. So that business continues to grow for us. And uh, there's a lot of new exciting product coming down the lane at DJ. Yeah, I think we should do an episode on it here soon, Dan, just like letting people know what we're going through, kind of the growing pains, product development process, all that stuff. Most of this stuff is actually new to us in terms of developing the software. We've made like more mistakes, I think, probably than we've made good decisions. So it's probably important to share those with everybody. It's really interesting. The software decisions have been a big learning curve for us. A huge learning curve. One of the things I'll mention is just our growth. It's been insane. I think I posted on Twitter last year, we had like 15,000 in May, we had like 15,000 profiles, something like that. We're over 100,000 now. So 100,000 people have come to our site, they've raised their hand, they've created a profile saying, hey, I want a remote job. So for us, this is just the beginning. It's growing faster than anything we've ever built. Yeah, and we've come a, also created problems for ourselves, right? We've had a lot of problem with spam at the site. Now all of a sudden DJ's on the map and people are coming and spamming all kinds of, who knows what they're looking for, but we're having to figure out filtering systems and, and spam uh, solutions. And, and so it's just all these really interesting growth challenges we've been facing. And if we're light on news updates, a lot of it is because every day there seems to be a new challenge coming across the desk. It's a really exciting position to be in and Hopefully a lot of those lessons are going to filter their way down to the podcast. Final thing I'll say about Dynamite Jobs that has been really refreshing for us the last couple of weeks is continuing to focus on our OMTM, which is the one metric that matters. I think this is really important for every business. Is how many Instagram followers you have, right? Yeah, depending on your business, right? <laughs> for us, it's the amount of quality candidates that you get when you post a job with us. And we feel like you should have an overwhelming sense that there are more than one people that you would want to hire for this position. An embarrassment of riches, if you will. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so basically you can mention OMTM in any conversation you're having about product development, about customer service, 
about design. And if it all comes back to that OMTM, for us, that has been a guiding principle. And it's been a really great way to kind of direct our product and our conversation. So I would suggest to everybody listening to this podcast, if you don't have an OMTM in your business, it's one thing that you can do this week that might revolutionize your process. Well, let me use that as a segue to go back in time and do some podcast history. Ian, let's just continue the navel gazing while we're at it. The TMBA has always been a bit of a gonzo podcast. Here are two guys who aren't necessarily talented at entrepreneurship. Let's watch them try their hand at it. And I think another thing that's worth bringing up is that we're both from the working class. We have a different starting point than a lot of people in the tech industry who might have gone to elite universities or come from the professional class. Sort of, we could have easily be working as sales guys or in a warehouse somewhere but saw the opportunity of the internet and decided to like make that jump. And I think that's something that I think is like sort of in every story of the Tropical MBA. A lot of our guests are people who made the decision to build businesses on the web because of the opportunity, not necessarily because of where they came from. With that said, I was basically digging through the archives of the TMBA looking for copy inspiration. And 10 years ago, we came on this podcast with this message and I'll just read some of it. We don't do everything well, but this turned out to be a $90,000 launch that we just casually did on the pod. And you know, you do enough things and sometimes things hit. And I want to read it back to you, Ian, to get your reflections on this and to see if you think there's a possibility for something like this in the future. So how we can help jumpstart your business this summer. Again, this was written uh, over 10 years ago. I've watched too many entrepreneurs waste time and money by getting caught up on the problems that we've already solved the confidence of a, of a young man there. Our podcast, blog, and community can only help so much. It's time to get a passionate group of entrepreneurs in a room together and do something great. If you'd like to take your business to the next level or are looking to start a new venture, I'd love for you to consider joining us this summer. And then we go on to list some requirements, like you must be willing to offer help, advice, and quality feedback. You must be willing to cover the costs on your own. I won't be sponsoring startups or taking equity. I think doing a little price anchoring there. You must enjoy and actively seek out peers and mentors who challenge or criticize your ideas. We go on a little bit there. And one of the benefits we outline is the, you can't fail at this insurance, extraordinary external pressure to succeed, immediate access to our network of experts, lifelong friendships, and more. Anyway, we launched this on the pod, basically run weeks long seminars in the Philippines at the time. And it represented a $90,000 launch, some crispy copywriting there as well as a pretty unforgettable summer. What do you remember about that time and what remains true about this community today? I remember you oversold the food situation there and we got into trouble. <laughs> That's what I remember. Actually, that those seminars, they, uh, they were a good time. And there's still a lot of people in the community now that have gone on to grow really successful businesses that came to those seminars. So number one, we realized that we didn't want to do seminars through that, but I think we had to like get it out of our bloodstream to figure out if that was going to be the case. So if you have an idea, best way to figure out if you want to do it is not to talk about it and dream about it for five years, but to actually do it. We did it for two weeks, we decided it wasn't for us. The other thing that I learned there is uh, it's very hard to do that kind of stuff. It's very hard to put on a seminar. It's very hard to uh, have content throughout the day. But what we did ultimately learn there, I think, is bringing entrepreneurs together to talk with each other to discuss their ideas is truly valuable. And so I think that through that event, it gave us the confidence to throw these DCBKK events and whatnot that we still do today. All right, uh, let's get moving on to some questions here, Ian. We've got a voicemail 
from a listener who's anon. Let's play it. Yo, Dan and Ian. First of all, I want to say thanks so much for all this amazing content with the Tropical NBA. It's really changed my life since I started listening. So here's my question. A little bit of context first. I have a good idea. I've built it and validated it. I have a couple customers and I'm super passionate about the problem it's solving. That being said, it's a two-sided marketplace, which you know are hard to bootstrap. On top of that, the demand side is relatively high churn and lower willingness to play to pay. If I were to sum it up, I'd say this business is kind of like a Toyota Corolla, but I have so much founder market fit that I'd feel like Max Verstappen driving it. I also believe that if I ditched this idea and dedicated more time to testing other ones, I'd come across a business that would at least drive like a BMW, you know, recurring revenue, B2B, higher ticket, even though I as a founder would be less of a weapon at the wheel. So I guess my question is, if given the choice, would you rather have a business where you're the Formula One racer driving a Toyota, or would you rather be an average Joe driving a Ferrari? Well, first off, Ian, I got to say, I don't completely understand the metaphor, but I want to play with it a little bit because I really like cars and I want to compare myself to a car. Exactly. So let's, <laughs> That's why it's worth talking about. Let's talk about cars. I do think that there's some interesting prompts here to talk about things like founder fit, market opportunity, and biz model shopping in theory. So let's start with the last one here, biz model shopping, because there are business models that position you as the hero and you can go pump revenue relatively easy. So the coaching seminar model that we just brought up is a decent example of that, right? Like if I really wanted to, I could email the listener base of this show and say, hey, Dan and Ian are gonna be coaches. We are gonna help you grow great businesses and here's a big price tag on it. And then we pump revenue and we pay the rent for that quarter. Now, if you have a marketplace, it's a little bit different because the actual business itself needs to be more of the hero. And so I think if you're looking for early stage revenue and you are, as the listener described, an excellent player in the marketplace, I think it probably, I would like bias towards bringing home the bacon and getting cash flows going and then building behind the cash flows to optimize them. So, you know, you start with your coaching and then you build a coaching system, you use the profits to build out a system and then train other coaches and then eventually you move yourself to something like a marketplace, which where the marketplace can really be the star. But having been in the game for 15 years, Ian, we've been business partners for 15 years, taking on the challenge of building a marketplace right now, it is enormously challenging and expensive. We have a big team. I definitely wouldn't start there. For me, there's a couple of things we're talking about here. Uh, one is just the red flags. So I have a good idea. I built it and validated it. A couple of customers. That being said, it's a two-sided marketplace, very hard. We're in the middle of that right now. It takes a lot of capital to get that going. And then also a uh, high churn and low willingness to pay. These all sound like very bad things to me. So here's what I think. This is unrelated, but related. I had a friend of a friend come over the other day to help me with some wiring in my house. I had a pump go out and I needed some help. Electrician came over. Dan, electrician in Austin works a job, a J-O-B. Has to be there every day. Has a boss. How much do you think he makes? Quarter million. Yeah. Makes $240,000 a year after going to trade school and being an apprentice. Okay. So if your goal these days is to make a lot of money, there's a lot of different ways to do it. 
You could be a plumber. <laughs> you could be an electrician. Also, you could do a lot of things on the internet. It sounds like to me that this person is mostly interested potentially in doing things that they love. A lot of times the things that you love, they don't bring a lot of money. And so if you aren't attracted to money, but you are attracted to doing things that you love, then maybe just focus on doing the things that you love. A lot of these things are also things that you could do on the weekend that don't necessarily need to be your job. So what we've always strived to do on this show, and I think it's been very difficult, I think it's also been meant for us and making less money in our careers, is doing things that we're interested in, being tinkers, being artists, that leads to less money a lot of times. So if you're interested in doing those things, like if you just love doing this, you just love producing the service or this product, that's okay. But expect to make less money doing it. If you're okay with that. That's Toyota Corolla. <laughs> Again, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I love that he tried to weave in the car thing here, but yeah. yeah, the Toyota Corolla might be the financial vehicle. And it's like you're overqualified to drive the Toyota Corolla. I think that's what's going on here. Yeah. I mean, have your fun convertible Fiat for the weekends, but don't do your commute in it kind of thing. Yeah. Like typically... If you're passionate about a business and it doesn't give back to you vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the oxygen of cash flow, that can lead to some very bad situations down the line. You want to find that fit, that connection of my work is valued here. I know that because there's positive cash flows coming in and then I can afford my nice car. And on the weekends, I can go cruising around in a convertible. Otherwise, it's very common to lose your passion for what you're doing because the wheels fall off to stick with the metaphor. My advice is... The business model sounds expensive and unforgiving and that the early signs, although people bought some stuff, it doesn't look that profitable. I'd move on to something where you can have more control over that cash flow. Monday. Monday. What's faster than a top fuel dragster down the quarter mile? Your business when you use Dynamite Jobs Recruiting to supercharge your cash flow engine. Strap in, gas up, and let the profits flow. If your hiring is slow or falling off track, supercharge your strategy with a zero to 30 minute phone call with our legends of the hard sell. They'll dazzle you with high pressure, career killing sales tactics, urgency, urgency, urgency persistence, persistence, auto dealership desperation. And then tell me you could use a little more of these in your pursuit of business excellence. Operations managers in Omaha, marketing mavens in Marbella, coding wizards in Cape Town. We're taking this race global. Thanks to the support of listeners like you, it's not just the hard driving, EN closing, showing at the wheel anymore. We've got a whole team at your service. This Monday. Monday. Let's outrun your competition with an insanely profitable hire from Dynamite Jobs. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and click on remote recruiting. All right, next question, Ian. This comes from the DC Forum itself. And there's a wonderful conversation in there. How do you manage your net worth without hurting your brain? Okay, I want to start with my reply because this is pretty recent for me that I moved off of mint.com and onto just a simple one-page spreadsheet, an example of which I will share at this podcast post. So you can click onto your phone and take a look at exactly what I'm talking about right now. It's a bit of a revelation for me, Ian, that most of the wealthiest and people in my life that are best with money have a very simple personal process. I have been guilty in the past of overcomplicating my financial process, too many credit cards, too many bank accounts, too many clever tax maneuvers, and I would have been much better off to keep it super, super simple. So my process is to open up the spreadsheet that I've linked to. On the final Friday of every month, I will take one hour and log into every single bank account, every single trading account, every single retirement account, 
check that everything's okay, keep the account active, make sure I know my password. And that has the related function of just keeping it simple. I don't want to have six credit cards to have to log into every month. And so I've canceled a lot of things, make sure the fees are going away, have it be very, very simple, update everything, simple little pie chart of your allocation. And then I say, if you have a complicated financial part of your life, that really should be your business. You know, you should have accountants, bookkeepers taking care of the more complicated things. I like to keep it very, very simple, one-page spreadsheet for personal net worth. What do you got, Ian? Yeah, basically do the same thing. I think um, where it gets a little bit complicated for me is the price that you bought an asset versus what the market values the asset at. That can get a little tricky on these spreadsheets. So I just try and like underreport that stuff. So I'll report like what I bought it at, which is basically cash out mm -hmm. into this asset. And then I'll generally like underreport what I think it's worth just to save myself a little bit of a you know situation where I might be like over leveraged there. So I think that that's really the only complicated thing about my spreadsheet, but I basically do it the same way you do, which is uh, track it that way. And at the end of it, you can generally come up with one number and like you can see that number go up or down. You can see your cash go up or down. A lot of times for me, cash shifts into assets, right? So you can kind of track that. The other difficult part though about being an entrepreneur and like owning these businesses and like equity stakes and all that stuff is essentially trying to value these assets and figure out what they're worth. So I don't think that that's necessarily a, a worthwhile exercise. The rule of thumb I use is 30-day realizable low effort. With a business, for example, I don't even put the business value on there. All I put is our cash balance in our business bank account. And so it's like, I can take out half of that money because we're 50-50 partners, right? But I'm not going to sell a business in 30 days. So yeah. I don't think it's worth pumping up your numbers. I think a lot of people do want to put their asset values on there, whether it's their business or what. It also depends, you know, are you ever going to sell that business or are you always going to have it as a cash flow? You know, mm -hmm. so I think we're about to see probably a correction here where a lot of businesses go maybe 50% on their cash flow and then maybe 50% on their valuations too. So how do you build that into a spreadsheet? Well, yeah. my approach is always just be super conservative about it. 100%. Yeah. Worst case scenario. Agree with that. And let's, you know, simplify this to the top level. Like what are the real big mistakes here? The first thing is just not doing it, right? Not looking because you're scared of what you're going to see. I feel like that combined with overcomplicating it for your financial station, if your net worth is $100,000 and you've got five credit cards and four loans and three bank accounts, one of them's in a foreign country, maybe you should simplify a little bit. And I think that really holds true as you grow as well. Next thing I pulled from Twitter, Mitko at That Remote Life podcast, was uh, we had an interesting conversation about the idea of the term digital nomad. Is it still relevant in 2022? Has it changed post-pandemic? And most importantly, why do people cringe when they hear the term? Is it because of the Instagram behavior of hashtag digital nomad? <laughs> <laughs> Here's basically the idea that I think is sort of worth reflecting on is we've long avoided the term too, right? We say location independent entrepreneur. Why? Why isn't this the podcast for digital nomads? Um, and even I thought about it recently because someone walked up to me at a party who's Long identify with the digital nomad scene because there is a scene, right? There's a co-living scene, there's cruises, there's cities that are popular. And he more or less said to me, I kind of get it now. This is like the business end of that community or this is the pointy end. And of course, that really resonated with me and made me feel happy. Like, yeah, we are high status digital nomads. <laughs> the conjecture, the hypothesis I walked with was that people don't cringe 
necessarily a digital nomad because it's not a precise term or it's a bad term or whatever. I think they cringe because it's relatively speaking low status and people want to associate themselves with higher status terms. So if you're a digital nomad who also is an artist or an entrepreneur, you're likely to gravitate towards those labels. Even if say you have a job at IBM, but you're living the digital nomad lifestyle, it's sort of like a very basic foundational term, like saying I'm a homeowner. I guess actually a homeowner is higher status than digital nomad, depending on what your values are, right? Because then it signals wealth that you own a home. Whereas digital nomad signals that you sold your shit and got on an airplane. So. <laughs> or maybe you never had any shit in the first place. I think we're kind of the first people to live this life, meaning create income from anywhere, basically. With a physical products business publicly. Yes. Essentially what started to happen was people started doing yoga poses, you know, with spectacular backgrounds. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag uh, digital nomad. But then you dig a little deeper and like, where's the business? It's, oh, it's some coaching thing or this or that. It's a coaching thing, yeah. Yeah. So generally speaking, you know, the default was a digital nomad because you can't talk about how you're selling this yoga life dream to everybody. I think for a lot of people, it started to have a negative connotation. I'll just say this, Dan, when you say low status, I think of it a little bit different. I think of it as like basic entry point. In fact, mm -hmm. now it's very easy to be a digital nomad. And that's something that's crazy because uh, 20 years ago, it was very hard to do. So when you say low status, I just think it's easy. It's easy yeah. to do this. And it's interesting because producer Jane, that was like one of the responses that she put in that I thought was thoughtful is she basically said like, hey, like a packing post, how to pack a bag to travel abroad was actually somewhat meaningful content back before there was like Agoda, Airbnb, a lot of the content around digital nomadism, I won't say profound, but it was necessary. Well, here's the thing is like our equipment, our microphones, um, a lot of the stuff that we use to produce our work, like you simply could not get this stuff abroad. Like there was no Amazon in Spain at the time. Like you actually had to pack like you were leaving for several months. Well, there was no smartphones. The world has changed just so, so dramatically, making it a lot easier to achieve. It's also been industrified by coaches. Speaking of status, I want to mention one that's, I think, really important to us in our self-esteem is it's really been important to us that, you know, we just talked about the success that our events are having and, and stuff like that. It's been important to us that we have a business that is larger than the podcast business. That's like a internal goal that we had. Like, it kind of sucks to make your income primarily as a business coach if you don't have a business that's bigger than your business coaching business. I was making some notes the other day, Ian, like there's three ways to sustainably be a business coach, you know, or not fail at it or not fall into like the basically failure cycle that I see constantly with coaches and gurus. So the first is that within three years of a big success and like that content's fresh. The other is to build a system like Gino Wickham did this with traction. So if you can somehow systematize the knowledge, then finally you can be a practitioner preacher. And this has long been the model that we try to espouse here on the podcast. Just, you know, call it what you want. But I think it's important that if you want to talk about business, it's better if it comes from experience. I've just seen so many of these theory hounds over the years. You open up the hood of that Lamborghini and there's a Toyota Corolla engine inside of there. Actually, if you open up the hood, there's nothing. All right. So is a digital nomad scene. I think honestly, there's these metaphors of a digital nomad 
is in the form of a backpacker, you know, and backpackers like cool, but it's not like a high status thing. A digital nomad is like a backpacker who's making money while they travel around. Location independent entrepreneur may be more in the model of an expat, someone who might not live in their home country, but kind of sets up shop, has, you know, not just kind of moving through for a few weeks at a time. So anyway, this just thought it was an interesting idea to talk about that term digital nomad. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's a decent term. And I don't think people cringe because it's a bad term. I just think they cringe because they don't want to be associated with yoga poses. All right. Listener Sean writes, Sean has a lot of questions about management that I thought were really interesting. I'm going to pick off some of them and send them your way. Ian, what are some key ideas in how you lead these days? How have those evolved from when you started as a leader or a boss? And what kind of culture do you strive to build in your organizations and why? And, and how do you judge your own success relative to all these things? It's very complicated. We could do a whole episode on this. The idea of leadership, I think, circles around to what we brought up at the beginning of the show, which is like identifying what the OMTM is or identifying what your guiding principles are and then trying to have your whole team be focused around these things. So I think it's very easy in organizations, especially when you have 10, 20, 50 people, to have everyone kind of starting to have their own agenda about what they think is important in the organization. And a lot of times that's going to lead to chaos. And so I think these guiding principles, these OMTMs are a great way to like bring everybody together and make sure that everyone is focused on the same goal. It's been a big focus for us in this new organization, Dan, is making sure that we're all on the same page. Because if left up to your own device, myself, everybody on our team included, you kind of do what you want, what you feel like is right, what you're interested in. But that generally isn't what's going to push the business forward necessarily. So having some guiding principles and making sure that everybody is on the same page is really important. In terms of um, how this has like changed through the years, for me, when we started our first business, Dan, we were managing people in our early 20s. I didn't have a uh, family, I didn't have kids. Like I had a different perspective on life for sure. So I think like I'm a little bit slower now, meaning like I'm a little bit more conscious of everybody's needs and desires and like this work thing, this entrepreneurship thing, it's really cool. And it's really propelled our lives into um, places where I never thought I would be. And I want to make sure that kind of everybody else is pushing their life to where they want it to be too. So being mindful of that, like, hey, we're all in this mission together in this spaceship trying to accomplish something great. I also want people to have like personal alignment too in the organizations. And I didn't really care that much about that in the beginning. It was kind of like my spaceship, like get on. And there's still some of that going on. I think these days I respect a lot more like our team members' desires, basically, within the organization and outside of the organization. We're nicer as a way. We're a lot nicer than we used to be. Yeah, there's a lot to life, right? And this is just one facet of it. So I'm like glad that we can all like get together on this, but I understand this party doesn't go on forever for everybody. It reminds me a lot of like Chris Voss's message and Never Split the Difference. He talks about creating deals with people. And, you know, if you squeeze somebody into a deal and you're coercing them, essentially, like from a management perspective, this is like when you're telling someone what to do. Yeah. And then you're like asking for their buy-in. You agree with what I just told you, right? If they don't have full personal alignment, then it just it's going to come back to bite you in the ass and create more work for you anyway in the long run. So I think our management approach is like really trying to find that authentic resonance of like, hey, here's the OMTM. Here's what can make this business great from our perspective. What do you see in this? Like, what role do you want to play in this? Do you buy it? I think we're both 
very transparent in terms of like our thinking process, trying to share as much as possible on calls with the team so that it actually reduces your overall workload because then they can really kind of inhabit the role in a really deeply authentic way where when you're just telling people things to do, demanding that they follow the vision, I think it makes your job harder as a leader. The final thing I'll say just about like what's changed over the years in terms of management style. One of the things I'm noticing about myself, and I think this just comes with like having a bigger business and a little bit more budget and whatnot is like, I love hiring professionals. It was a game back in the day for us, Dan, to like pay as little as possible, essentially, and like develop people. I'll show you everything I know. Like you can become like me. You can have all this one day. This will be your stepping stone. I think that that was like a fun thing to do in our 20s and 30s. Like now I'm starting to realize like, I just want to pay someone the best person, a decent salary or even a lot of money if they're like the best at what they do. And I want them to come in here and like really have an impact. Like I just want to be 40. Meaning like I don't have the patience uh, to develop people professionally like I used to. Like I just want to hire professionals now. You only have so much energy and I would rather put that energy into people that are further along at this point. Yeah, Sean goes on to ask like, uh, I think this is reflective of maybe us aging a little bit, having different types of goals. What types of relationships works with folks on the teams? I mean, you ask like friends, straight results-based, mentor. I was very hesitant to be friends with people earlier in my career uh, because I wanted to reserve the right to be an asshole at any given moment. And that was really, I think, partially true. If I'm looking back on it, the only thing that mattered to me was the goal. And so you kind of have a distance. I think that we've changed and I'm, I'm friends with a lot of people on the team now and I really enjoy spending time with them. And you have different benefits to that because like, you know, you can find ways to get them more involved and more productive or you can find ways to help them do what they truly want to do if it's not an alignment. And I think that's a cool way to approach it as well. And that's related to the final piece here, which is hierarchical versus flat. I don't think being friendly and open and transparent really implies flat. I think flat's pretty inefficient. So I think for me, the max direct reports is five. I think creating hierarchies that make sense is smart, but then also always checking in with people a few rungs down so that you can I think there's a official terms that corporate people use for this, but basically you're doing check-ins to make sure that you can get a different perspective on people that you are managing to make sure that vision and that approach flows through the organization. I don't want to send out too many kumbaya vibes here, but that's generally the way that I'm like approaching this. But there's a couple things that like are worth mentioning that we're not willing to waver on. One of those things is like the vision. And then another thing is making sure that we have like good fundamentals in terms of our financial situation. So I think we can talk about like alignment and making sure everybody's happy and all these things. But like at the end of the day, like uh, as the entrepreneur, you're taking the biggest risk here. So defining the vision, not wavering on it, making sure that you're true to it, you're true to yourself there. And then having people come in that agree with that vision that are on the same track is really important. The second you start letting people step all over your vision and like where the company's going, that's your job. And a lot of times like people have their own ideas about this and they don't have enough skin in the game and they can really derail the whole situation for you. There's hundreds of competing visions out there at any given time. And, the, you know, in some ways, the easiest part of being a leader is figuring out what that vision's going to be. 
and how you're going to have to go after it. The hardest part is making sure it's a brave vision and galvanizing and inspiring the people that you're leading to take risks on behalf of that vision. That's really, that's really the trick. And when you can get it going in a business, it's pretty magical. All right, everybody, have a happy, happy Thursday afternoon. Keep sending us your questions. I'm Dan at TropicalMBA.com. He's Ian at TropicalMBA.com. We will answer your great questions with uh, mediocre answers. We appreciate it. (laughs) See you guys. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.